0: Do you consider yourself an american absolutely you know much more than a canadian now when you're a little goat and you sleep next to an elephant you want to understand the elephant's movements of course someone could have done my job would they have done it as well of course not
1: (laughs) hello and welcome to why america the immigration podcast my name is tim kane i'm the jp Conte research fellow in immigration studies at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We aim to explore with this podcast, the reasons why so many millions of foreign migrants choose to come to the United States and to take an oath of citizenship, a process that is both a testament to diversity, but also to a cultural confirmation of American values. Our guest today is economist, David Henderson. David R. Henderson is an Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Naval Postgraduate School a research fellow with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and a senior fellow with Canada's Fraser Institute. He was previously a senior economist for health policy and energy policy with President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. David writes one of the most successful and longest-running economics blogs at EconLog. You can actually find it at econlib.org econlog. And David's the editor of the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, the only reader-friendly Encyclopedia of Economics, and he's written two other books, The Joy of Freedom, An Economist's Odyssey and Making Great Decisions in Business and Life. He's written over 300 articles for every newspaper and magazine you can name. And lastly, David's testified before Congress on many occasions and appears often on C-SPAN, CNN, the Jim Lehrer NewsHour, John Stossel Show, The O'Reilly Factor, The Ingram Angle, MSNBC, RT, NPR, CBC, and yes, the BBC. So David, welcome to Why America. Thanks, Tim. Um, You and I have been friends for a long time, colleagues at Hoover. I didn't know that you were an immigrant. And apparently this has been a problem. You've spoken at some conferences and told people you were an immigrant. You've written about this. And they come up and and compliment you on your English and then they're disappointed. (laughs) Canada doesn't count.
0: Right. By the way, I'll get to that. But one of my favorite lines and speeches that still gets a laugh, like 30 some years after I became a citizen, is if it's relevant, I'll say, I'm from Canada, eh? (laughs) it it still gets a laugh. But yeah, so what happened was I came down to UCLA in September 72 to get my PhD. And I fell in love with Los Angeles, California, and United States in that order, uh, within two weeks and decided, I don't care what I have to do. I'm never going back. And so one of the things I did the guy who got me to come there was Harold Demsetz. He'd come up to the University of Winnipeg when I was an undergrad a couple of years earlier and told me that I was good enough. I should come down to Chicago. Meanwhile, he'd moved to UCLA oh. and uh, he uh, he was happy to for me to show up there. And I loved the way Demsetz. I loved everything about Demsetz, including the way he spoke. So I'd listened to this tape of his lecture over and over, over wow. a couple of years. And I started trying to talk like him because I was thinking, if I have to, and this was a 21-year-old's thinking, if I have to, I'm going to live here illegally, (laughs) which wouldn't have, you know, I don't want to sound like a Canadian. It wouldn't have worked because if I'm trying to establish a reputation, how do you do that illegally? And so, you know, I went the standard route. But here's the thing. The standard route, nothing is straightforward in immigration law. If you're trying to be legal, you might break the law without knowing. And that's what I did. Wow. So I got to the University of Rochester. I was tired of thinking of McDonald's as being luxury food. And so I got to the University of Rochester without my dissertation done. And for the first time, I was making real money. And I had what was called an F1 student visa practical training. So it was six months, six months, six months, during which time I had to finish my dissertation in order to get the Labor Department to, certif- to get my Ph.D., labor department to certify that no American could do this job and then immigrate. And so I felt like I'd walked through all the wickets. I got my PhD done two months before, before my visa expired, the school applied for labor department certification. So that comes through in April. I have my immigration interviews all set up in Buffalo and I have my sister come down from Toronto for the day. I'm going to take you to a nice lunch to celebrate. The woman asked me, Okay, your F one student visa expired in February. Your labor department certification came through in April. What were you doing in those intervening two months? Were you working? <laughs> and one thing I've learned is never lie to a federal to a, okay, any Okay, okay. So I said, yeah, I was working. And then she became very officious. Oh, okay, you no. have been working here illegally for two months. I am required by law to end this interview immediately. I'm also required to undertake deportation proceedings against you. And so I got a good lawyer. i mean a really good lawyer who'd never done an immigration case in his life. He was recommended to me by a friend. And, and you know, he got them to hold off on that. Well, I did it the route going through Toronto, throwing the, through the U.S. consulate in Toronto. So that's how it happened.
1: So you're you're a, you're a known criminal. We've had no criminal on the podcast now.
0: Um, I think it wasn't a crime, actually, I think. So, I, yeah, you know, I've never on all every form I've always said, no, I've never committed a crime because somehow that would have come across that it was a crime. But I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, I start. It's funny, David, because I'm thinking of there. Are, we tend to think of immigration in terms of someone, yeah, who's come from Somalia or Vietnam and and for them. The regulations and all this bureaucracy, you just think, well, that's that's part of the price of freedom. But you, th- that's part of the beauty of you've got this amazing story. I mean, you're one of your books that, that I've been reading is a biography essentially, the first few chapters. But it really inspired me to remember what it was like to become a lover of liberty, you know, you, because yes. you, we're raised and we, we learn about the founding. But to think of it in principled terms, and you mentioned reading Ayn Rand novels, for example, and how you quit a job because you realized, wait, this is a government job. It's a great summer gig. You were, I think, seventeen at the time. But this is the government taking money from people that can't say no—the taxpayers—to pay me for a job that's helping the Soviet Union, you know, <laughs> by by way of studying trees or something. And I thought, wow, that's so self-aware at seventeen, and you made some hard decisions, but. I just wanted to say I really admired that and encourage the listeners that, that I think your biography is fascinating. And that's part of what we want to do on this podcast anyway, is you have written so much. You've spoken so often. I don't know if people know your life story as much. And so I'd really like to get into that.
0: By the way, just one thing about quitting that job, what it convinced me of, which I'd always, which I'd wondered about, even as a 17 year old, would I be willing to, to make the, I'm not gonna say the ultimate sacrifice, the ulti- my yeah. life. but would I be willing to make a big sacrifice for my principles and everything, I think that was one of the best decisions I ever made. And everything since then, I've never had a doubt about whether I would follow my principles.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, when you're 17, giving up a job that you've worked pretty hard to arrange, done interviews for, and then, yeah, yeah and, and it's like, I'm gonna quit. I loved how you were talking to your boss's boss, and you realized, it wasn't hostile. He, he was—he was sort of going through his own existential crisis, and here's this kid explaining why we can't really morally justify this work.
0: Um, yeah, it was like—and I said in the in that chapter, if anything convinced me there was something to my principles, it was a forty-year-old trying to persuade a seventeen-year-old. And by the way, it was a very good conversation the guy was a decent guy and it was like you know but it was just it was just interesting to me
1: so you know you're a pretty well known libertarian and you and i got to know each other through i found some of your writings on the draft and you you and i have been really allies on the fact that coercing young men and women to serve in the military is tantamount to slavery or, or you you know you challenged government officials on this but you were there at the time and in fact it makes me laugh you were coming from Canada to the US in nineteen seventy-two, and there were probably lots of young men avoiding the draft who'd been going back in the other direction. Was that was that a live wire that you remember that in talking to Americans immigrating? Well, yes.
0: In fact, let me tell you something I learned ten years later. The chairman of the econ department at UCLA was a guy named Clay LaForce, a guy I love. So this is gonna sound a little critical, but you know, I understand people. He called me and I got pulled out of a class to make me the, in Canada, to make me the offer to come to UCLA, so I could tell they wanted me. Oh, wow. First thing I asked, because I'm very aware of this, at this time, I'm 21, I said, would I be subject to the draft? Wow. And he says, oh, no, oh, no. (laughs) i found out 10 years later i sure as hell would have oh my goodness <laughs> and so now the the good news is the draft ended in june 73 and i got there in september 72 so yeah but you know i found a lot of people don't want to say they don't know i've learned that over yeah yeah, yeah
1: yeah <laughs> he, he was saying that doesn't make sense he he wasn't able to say no <laughs> um, but yeah, so our our um, price control president Richard Nixon is ironically also the one who you know, which is a terrible move against liberty, and you've written about that. Also ended the draft almost single handedly as a president.
0: Yeah. And basically, what happened was he let, he and Congress let the legislation expire because the draft had to be renewed every few years. But the guy who persuaded him, like Milton Friedman, gets a lot of credit and should get a lot of credit. The person who I think doesn't get as much credit as he deserves is a guy who was in his late 20s at the time, a young economist at Columbia University named Martin Anderson, who spent most of his rest of his career at Hoover. And Marty wrote a long memo, and I have it somewhere in my files that he sent it to me a few years before he died. And laying out to Richard Nixon kind of both the, the principled, the moral case, and the pragmatic case for getting rid of the draft. And Nixon bought it. And so Nixon devoted a whole radio address on CBS radio in October 68, less than a month before the election. To why we should get rid of the draft, I still remember reading his speech and learning a new term, Hobson's choice. We have a Hobson's choice, and I've kind of forgotten what it what it means. But isn't it something the way Americans don't get presidents talking to that man that way? No, anymore? no, no. I remember Calvin Coolidge using the word equipoise in a speech. <laughs> I had to look that one up. Times have changed. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: um, I've always found it ironic that uh, Nixon, who was sort of a, uh, a, my family didn't like Richard Nixon. And yet (laughs) he really deserves a ton of credit for for that decision in the draft. And it was great to meet you through that. But tell me, you and I find ourselves aligned in a lot of issues. Let's help think through this, because we've got two economists here. got a podcast about immigration. So you're so committed to ending the draft, so am I, what's the connection between the draft and immigration philosophically?
0: Well, it's, I mean, the basic philosophical connection is the use of force. So the draft requires that the government use force to get people into the military. So when, when I debated um, a proponent of the draft at Brown University in 1980, who looks like your favorite grandpa. I thought, I'm dead because he's looked so, but what I kept reading out to him from the legislation he wrote for a congressman in in Northern California was failure to comply will result in a fine of up to $10,000 and a prison sentence of up to five years. So I kept reminding these young people of that and I won the debate. So so it's use of force. Now, how does the government keep people from immigrating? Using force, uh, threatening them with force if they come in threatening them with force if they don't comply. And so that's the basic similarity.
1: In your biography, you've written about so many interesting people. And in fact, I would thought maybe we should cover some of the issues by talking about the individuals. And you've written, I mean, if folks will go to EconLog, you've got many many articles over the years where you're talking about immigration it comes up one of those was uh, you may not know this talking about personal biography george borjas professor at harvard yeah borjas um <laughs> i met my first year of graduate school at ucsd because he was a professor there so he was i wasn't in one of his classes but i got to see him in the hallway and talk to him and and he gave me some good advice about and he said look at me i was you know a, a kid who was a refugee from cuba so he brings a ton of personal credibility to this issue. And yet, well, I'll let you tell us, who, who's, who's George Borjas now? How would most people know him?
0: Well, in fact, let me tell you my interaction with him. When I put together the, what was then called the Fortune Encyclopedia of Economics, when the rights reverted to me and I dealt with Liberty Fund, I called it the, we called it the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics. I had promised Fortune and Time and Warner Books that it would be a, a mainstream book. So I wasn't just going to get libertarians to write in it. So Borjas at the time in the early 90s to me was the best, biggest expert on economics of immigration. And I got him to write it and he um, was more critical of immigration than I expected. He said it passed a cost benefit test that in fact, we Americans already here gain more from it than we lose, but it's not a large number. And, in the midst of this, I don't think I've ever told this story. My wife and daughter and I, we live in Monterey, and we went down to San Diego to visit some relatives. And when we're driving down there, we see this sign and it shows like a man, a woman and a little kid yes. on the sign, like they're crossing the road and don't hit them. Don't hit them. Yep. And it just, it, it, oh my, the, the reaction I had, like, what are we doing? So I went back and I was going to say I emailed him, but we didn't do email in those days. I wrote George and I said could you point out that maybe we could get those benefits higher and those costs lower by restricting immigrants access to welfare and stuff like that and he said okay and he he put in a paragraph that wasn't as strong as I wanted but but that's what motivated me to ask him to do that mm. Yeah, but
1: he was in this article or in his piece for the encyclopedia, which I have a copy of. I've been referencing it for a long time. I love it. I didn't really, you know, how you get a book and you just use it all the time and you don't pay attention to who wrote it. It was. <laughs> it took me a long time to connect the dots. That's a really interesting product. Yeah, but yeah. he he talks about costs and benefits from one perspective, which is you know, it, and that's the, the debate: is it benefiting? exclusively in a nationalistic way, right, the uh, the United States. And I think a lot of folks, Giovanni Perry and, and, and Brian Kaplan, have taken issue with that, that, you know, that the focusing on, at best, one-tenth of the Americans who maybe get some severe competition at the low end of the pay scale, but even that's hard to find long-term, but everybody else is benefiting. And you you, I thought, brought up a really good perspective. What about the immigrants themselves?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of why it's a little bit of a shock, because after all, George was an immigrant. So if we had applied that same test, it would have been, well, maybe we should let them in, you know. (laughs) And and so that's kind of I got to say, I'm a little disappointed (laughs) when I found out more about his history.
1: You know, I realized I skipped over. uh, I want to ask you about other folks. One is Brian Kaplan who has been your co-blogger for a long time and has written this great, great book on (laughs) pro-immigration. Do you remember meeting Brian for the first time?
0: I do. I went on sabbatical and part, and and when you do sabbaticals at the Naval Postgraduate School, where I spent most of my career, you go to various places for part of it. So I think somewhere between seven and nine weeks, I was at George Mason. And early on in my time there, I went to lunch with him and Tyler Cowan. And I'd known Tyler since Tyler was twenty. And um,
1: Oh my goodness, I didn't realize yeah, yeah. I didn't know anybody knew Tyler when he was twenty. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so so anyway, I remember I remember that. And I remember a very friendly guy. And well, but the other way, the other other interaction I'd had with him was when I was putting together a second edition of the encyclopedia, Tyler had recommended that Brian do the one on communism. And I thought, that's interesting, you know, what's, and I had him do it. And I still think it's one out of, of about 160 entries. It's one of the top 20, I think. So I've had this professional interaction with him by email before I ever met him. Okay.
1: I, yeah. I met him because he wrote about comic books. <laughs> now you, you're, you're, and I was so shocked because uh, I, I got, got a PhD, but I, where, where does the inspiration come from studying economics? You had this fascination with liberty. I had a very small allowance and I had opportunity costs every week. You want to buy a 35 cent comic book, man, that means you can't get your Katie bars. So we're um, very
0: similar. I used that, to sit in the drugstore until they kicked me out, just sitting there reading the comic books in the store. Oh, yeah, that, that's
1: that's one way around it. That's a, a market failure of some kind. So um, but how what was life like as for, for young David growing up in Canada?
0: Well, it was. Um, I mean, pretty good. You know, uh, my mother had finished 11th grade. My father had finished his Bachelor of Arts. And so it was a somewhat, you know, reasonable. And my mother, even though was not formally educated, was a very smart woman. And my father was a smart man. My father didn't like me arguing with him very much. Oh, and boy. so he would sometimes bat his eyes and say, don't contradict me. <laughs> yeah. My mother could handle it. And so, but one thing they both did when I would beat them in an argument, which wasn't often, but was, you know, it happened, uh, was they'd say, you ought to be a lawyer. And to them, in their world, a lawyer, somebody uses right. a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And so later on, I found it you could argue and be an economist. But anyway, <laughs> so that was it. It was a somewhat, and I'm not sure how personal I want to get here, but it was a somewhat dysfunctional family. Um, my mother and father ended up splitting. My brother committed suicide oh, I'm sorry, shortly after my mother died. And it was just a 69, December 69 to July 70 was probably the roughest seven months of my life. She died in December and he died the next July. So so it was kind of rough in some ways. But I always had this optimism, like, I'm going to get out of here. And the day I wrote my final exam... I hitchhiked from our small town into Winnipeg and took a train down to our, where our cottage was and got a job the next day at the summer resort. And I just, I thought, I said, I'm free, I'm free, you know? And it was just really important to be kind of free of that household to some extent.
1: Yeah. My dad, uh, love him dearly, but he would always, I was a reader. I was just a super nerdy kid. And, um, and he, I, I feel if he listens to this, I am nervous now. I used to get my dad a book for his birthday every year because I knew he didn't like to read very much, and we debated about Vietnam all the time. So I got him yeah. this big book, a Stanley Carnow's book on Vietnam. Gave it to him. Oh, knew he yeah. Would never read it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, let me just put in something nice about my father. Okay. My father was a high school teacher. And they put him in the same high school I went to, which is 300 students. And they made sure he never got to teach either my sister, my brother, or me, which I think was a huge mistake, because I think we would have seen him at his best.
1: You're right. And I didn't know that
0: until accidentally in 12th grade, because we had a, a math teacher who was very good. Karen Smeltz was her name. And I was really looking forward to doing Trig. And she got pregnant out of wedlock. And in those days, you had to quit. Oh, wow. And I remember calling her up on the phone and saying, Miss Smeltz, please, please reconsider. And she said, I can't. And then we went through awful trig teachers for the rest of the year. We went through three more. And one of them actually literally just read out of the book to us. And I was losing it. And math was my thing. So I went to my father who would come home every day, uh, kind of do like that guy in the Goldbergs and strip down to his shorts and lie in bed with his cigar. And he did read, he'd read his his book for that week. I said, Dad, I need help on Trigg. So, why certainly son, lie down here. So I'd have to, as I said in my book, I, I grasped the concepts and gasped the fumes from his cigar. And, and, but it was like, oh my God, this guy's good. And then I thought, yeah, Gee, I wonder how he is in physics. Like, oh, my God, he's good. I wonder wow. How he is in wow. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so five courses and three of them at chemistry. I nailed English. <laughs> that's a whole other story. He told me he gave me really bad advice, which probably would have got me higher grades. You should be very flowery in your writing. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned writing for Fortune. That's the exact opposite of what you should do. And so, anyway, um, so but three out of five, he just helped me, and I got good grades and got got a scholarship. And oh wow, it, that's and, a great and story. I had a connection with him. I wouldn't have.
1: Hey, so so what what are what are the things about Canada that Americans don't understand?
0: I think one thing they don't understand is how incredibly informed Canadians are about the United States. When you're a little goat and you sleep next to an elephant, you wanna understand the elephant's movements. And so the old line was when United States, and it's not necessarily accurate economically, but the old line was when United States gets a cold, Canada gets pneumonia. And so Canadians are very well informed. 90% of Canadians, well, leave out Edmonton. uh, 85% of Canadians live within 150 miles of the U.S. border we're just very informed. I think that's one reason if you look at Hollywood, a lot of the people who come from Canada to Hollywood are comedians disproportionately Jim Carrey and so on. And I think it's as one, one Canadian who lived in America a long time explained to me when Canadians see America next door, they can do this humor. They understand it so well. They can do this subtle humor that other people from other countries couldn't do because they, they, they're, so disconnected, but we're very connected. And and by the way, to put in perspective, our family used to the first town I lived in was 16 miles north of North Dakota, and we used to because of uh, blue laws in in Manitoba, there were no movies on Sunday. We used to drive down Sunday night to a small town in North Dakota called Dunseath, 29 miles south, and see movies. And you went across the border. My father didn't even show his driver's license. What are you doing? going to Dunseath, what for see a movie okay you know and that was it yeah
1: and you've said that the big difference between Canadians there there were two that you realized um is that you found yourself not asking for things that you wanted, that Americans no, are right. very good at That's saying right. what we want. I've, I've yeah. called that work. Why do so many things get invented in America? And it's because we're the great complainers say, so I don't like the way this is working. I'm going to invent something. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you said it a little bit more politely. But what <laughs> what are the misperceptions you think Americans have about Canada? Because the goat, the elephant doesn't probably know as much about the goat.
0: Well, they just don't know. I don't know. They think we're more polite than we are, although I think Canadians are more polite, but the gap isn't that huge. So all these Canadian jokes, all these jokes, which are kind of fun, like, you know, where the bottom line is Canadians are being so polite. I, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but I think there's something to it. The ones who are kind of dissatisfied with medical care here think it's great in Canada. And as I said once, I said it on a talk show, and this young med student at University of Manitoba heard me and quoted it in a Wall Street Journal article. And I said, that sounds really good. I can't see where I wrote it. But what I'd said on this talk show in, in Winnipeg when I was up there going to my cottage is that Canadian health care is great if you've got a cold and you're willing to line up. <laughs> you know? So that's you know that's one thing that... So that's a perception... That's not a uniform perception in, in the United States. A lot of people get that about Canada. A lot of people don't, though. And so that's, that's one.
1: All right, David, we're going to try to do something here, which is rapid fire. Um, favorite movie in the last few years? A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men? That's great. All right, I can't, I'm not doing follow up <laughs> here. Um, what music are you listening to now that you, that you enjoy?
0: Um, well, I have these. <laughs> shoot, this kid's hard to do rapid fire. I have a <laughs> wide range of of design of, of. I tend to like music from Journey. From journey. You know, yes. I listen to them a lot.
1: When you were um, a kid, what sort of music was in the house?
0: This is one thing I give credit to my parents for. Classical music. We they bought this twenty album set. And when they, especially when they were away, and it's just at home, I'd put on an LP and listen to Rachmaninoff or Beethoven or Mozart.
1: What about anything like since the 80s? Any good (laughs) PMs? Right. Uh, (laughs) Because I'd uh, say there are none. It was all uh, all great in the 80s. It's nothing good. uh, Leona
0: Lewis, Sarah Bareilles, offhand.
1: Okay. When did you first visit the United States?
0: And where did you go? Well, going to North Dakota. I don't know if you count that. Okay. my first big visit in the sense of actually being there on my own I went to a conference held by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute at Rockford, Illinois in 1969, August, 69, after I'd worked a summer in a mine in Northern Canada to make money for my last year of college. And it was, um, that was my, I was there for a week. So that was my first time.
1: Okay. All right. Quick answer. You said you fell in love with LA, then California, then the United States in that order. Are you still in love with LA?
0: No. (laughs) I think it's really gone downhill. I think government uh, has had a major role in ruining it. So, yeah, no.
1: Ah, that's really too bad. It is a golden place, but I haven't been in a while. Now, you live in a beautiful part of California, uh, Monterey, California, which is a hidden gem. I think even though it's well known, still, I've been there. It just blows your mind how pretty it is. Is that your favorite place in the United States?
0: I on net yes, uh, I don't like it as much as I did because government is getting very intrusive. Well, with the lockdowns, it's clear cut. But even in oh, yeah. the lockdowns, my wife can't order uh, a certain kind of liquor from other another state because of some rules about you know bringing it into California. Little things like that that add up. But on net, yes, it is. Witness the fact that we live here. So there's something in economics. Well, I'm getting too long winded. But in economics, you look at what people do as an estimate of what they value. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What city uh, or state or place in the United States have you not visited that you want to go to?
0: There's only one state I haven't visited, and that's South Carolina. Right. South Carolina. Right. Well, it depends if you count spending a few hours in the Anchorage airport as being in Alaska, um, <laughs> but South Carolina. And I'd love to see it. I've heard great things about Charleston. I've heard great things about Austin. I've been there for a conference, but it's been 20, 35 years. I'd like to see that again. And those are kind of the main things. It's funny you mention it. So it's mainly other countries I'd like to see.
1: And you are a sports fan.
0: I am, of the Warriors, mainly. War,
1: the the Go- Golden State Warriors NBA basketball team.
0: Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: how are they doing this year?
0: They're on the cusp of the play-in. Had a bad night last night, but um, I think they'll get to the play-in.
1: But do you, So you're Canadian. That's like, it's all soccer, or not soccer. It's all hockey for you guys, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, I, you know, when I came down here, hockey wasn't big down here. I remember my father came down and took me to see the los angeles kings this was oh. 1973 yeah and, and i still, my father had a booming voice and i used to be so embarrassed around him and now i totally miss that and he, he was a fan of the montreal canadians the canadians were playing we had to go there were three thousand people in the stadium this was pre-covid right and people who are real fans of the of the canadians call them Habitants, habitants or Habs. And my father yelled out, go Habs. And I just tried to shrink in my seat because everyone could hear him. But anyway, so I just lost hockey after I left Canada. Just, it, it, it just wasn't a big thing here for the first 20 years I lived here.
1: I think the most patriotic moment in American history, aside from defeating the British, I wasn't around for that. But my lifetime was the 1980 Winter Olympics. Now, here you Mm -hmm. are in the U.S., green card holder, not yet a citizen. Was that a patriotic moment for you?
0: Oh, yeah. Now, unfortunately, I was working. I, I was working at Cato. It was in San Francisco. And I think I was home that weekend or whenever it was, you know, working on stuff. So I didn't see it. I just heard about it. And One of my big regrets. But I'll tell you mine. (laughs) <laughs> was the 2002 winter olympics when it was canada versus the united states and when canada scored the tying goal i got up and ran around the living room hopping and whooping and my wife who was born in new jersey is going like <laughs> who is this and then when they scored the winning goal it was more crazier so can i tell you a story about a a little investigation the government did of me <laughs> sure sure please. So, as a federal employee, I had to fill out this form and I, it was a very lengthy form and you had to say whether you held a foreign passport in the last seven years I'd let it expire, but I had a Canadian passport and so I said that and they sent an investigator down to kind of look into me and he asked all these questions about my loyalty you know do you consider yourself an American? Absolutely you know much more than a Canadian now. do you consider yourself a hundred percent American? Well that's weird and I answered. 98. 98. 98, What's that? Well, obviously the 2% is when Canada is playing United States in Olympic hockey. (laughs) He didn't laugh. (laughs) Oh
1: my God. Oh, okay. Tell us uh, a book that changed your life.
0: Oh, clear cut. The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Really? I read it my first semester in college and I just first, it turned me into a reader for one thing. I wasn't much of a reader and then I read Atlas Shrugged, and then I read her nonfiction, and I realized I shared 90% of the views. And then that led me into reading economics, reading Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't read Ayn Rand.
1: Okay. she I, I remember there was an Ayn Rand phase for some friends of mine in college, in the book Fountainhead was just laying around campus. This is at the Air Force Academy,
0: David. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: And I enjoyed the Fountainhead, did not enjoy Atlas Shrugged. And I'm yeah. not saying philosophically, I'm just saying as a work of literature. But I really it's think that great. Fountainhead's yeah. a great book.
0: Yeah, it is. And Atlas Shrugged. I tried to reread it. I tried to I'd read it twice early in my life. I tried to reread it and couldn't, because all I could see in there was all her hurt and anger. You know, she was feeling hurt and that's how she took it out. Kind the
1: of <laughs> fa- fascinating thing about Ayn Rand, she's also an immigrant, right? And that that yes. she she didn't hide it, from, but uh, what a what a fascinating story. Tyler calls these kind of books quake books, you know, the ones that make you shake with the realization. And usually most people only have, I don't know, two, three, maybe four. What's another one for you that changed your life?
0: I don't know if this would say changed my life, but it was a quake book. And it was uh, Armin Elchin and William Allen's textbook in economics, University Economics. I had to master it my first quarter there to be teaching assistant for a course that used it. And the things I learned, going, I did every question at the back of every chapter, just in case a student asked me, which they never did. But I learned so much. So that was that was huge. Actually, at the time, in the late 70s, once I immigrated, I, for the first time in my life, had had some slack. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and that made a big impression. And then Brian did a series on it on econ law, Brian Kaplan, which kind of talked me out of it. <laughs> Damn him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah,
1: yeah. All right. I'm going to try to, um, because I want to talk about policy with you a little bit and some more of these economic ideas and some of the other people, but to finish on the rapid fire, this is, I don't know if you can be rapid with this one, but yeah. what's the most important right? in the U.S. Constitution.
0: Right to life. Yeah? Oh yeah, without life, there's nothing, right? You can't have liberty without life. You can't pursue happiness without life. Well, oh, sorry. That's in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it?
1: Well, that's okay. Uh, A lot of people would say it's in there. That that, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, when the Supreme Court weighs on on decisions of crime, it's embedded in that. What what they would call it, the penumbra of the Constitution, <laughs> the edge of the shadow. Um, <laughs> Privacy is it really in the Constitution? I would say it is. But um, now, I've often thought that the um, federalism is maybe the most interesting and important. Right. It has a guarantee of Republican government, but it also guarantees in the 10th Amendment states and the people shall reserve to themselves rights that aren't explicitly given to the federal government, which has been shredded now. Right. Joe Biden wants to do it. Joe Biden wants to do
0: it. Yeah, not totally shredded because both Trump, Trump went after it when he kind of said he gets to decide and Biden went after it and he's backed off. And so you actually do have state governments that are making their own decisions about the lockdowns. So you got Ron DeSantis, who I give two cheers, not three, because he's trying to ban hotels and so on from from requiring that you show your vaccine passport. Um, But anyway, he's been really good other than that on on these things you know so it's just great to see what that one supreme court justice called laboratories of democracy in action
1: yeah yeah and i think one of the one of the great things about our vaccine rollout was here, states were going to screw up but the other 49 might be doing it differently and if you have one federal government that gets it wrong like a lot of countries have experienced their their federal government or their central governments you know doing it wrong and, and, you know, one of the beauties is the states can't restrict immigration between one another. They can't restrict commerce between one another. It, 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 we forget how vast this country is and that it provides pretty powerful economic lessons.
0: Yes. I mean, the fact that you can move freely from one state to another undercuts a lot of the arguments people make about immigration into the United States. Although I would also point out there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that gives, that gives the, gov- the federal government the power to restrict immigration. Nothing there. All that talks about is naturalization. And in fact, for the first number of decades, the US government didn't restrict immigration, and states did. And so um that's just interesting to me.
1: Now you, you worry in terms of modern um debates over policy and if someone enacts comprehensive immigration reform, that it would include a policy you don't like and what, yes. what is that
0: e-verify so the idea is if you go to apply for a job the employer has to get your social security number and then make sure you're legal they can verify
1: you're a u.s citizen basically
0: or a permanent resident or a green card holder and so the when i've given talks in this i've said to audiences do governments ever make mistakes do they ever screw up with the data and in fact we've got actual evidence because a number of large companies have voluntarily put themselves in E-Verify. So we actually have some evidence that I think there's about a a half a percent error rate. Now, a lot of that gets corrected, but let's say the error rate prevents you from getting a job for two weeks. That's not a huge deal. But what if it's for some people, it's two months, three months, that is a huge deal. So Starbucks wants to hire, these are the old days, my daughter was young, I'd use this example. Starbucks wants to hire my daughter. Tomorrow, start tomorrow she had been a barista somewhere else. They can't, right? If, if there's a screw up, if there's a screw up. And then uh, John Cochran, our, one of our colleagues at Hoover pointed out, when I raised this with um, a visiting politician who we're not allowed to name because of the these roundtable things, but a major visiting politician who was pr- pushing E-Verify, a really sharp guy, I laid this out and I could tell by a look in his face, he'd literally never thought of it. And John said, David's being too polite. You know, it'll be used, let's say someone's a child molester, and that might mean you were 23 and you slept with a 17-year-old. And then he wants to get a job. Well, should we let child molesters get jobs? And this could put the federal government in, 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 this could ruin one of the best things we have going for us in our economy, which is a much freer labor market than, say, Europe has. And so and, and by I talked to my congressman, the guy, my guy now is Jimmy Panetta, but the guy before him was Sam Farr. And I talked to him about it and he talked about it in terms of making it hard for Hispanics to get jobs. I said, Sam, it'll make it hard for everyone to get jobs. And he literally had not thought of that. And he was against it.
1: I, no, I don't think comprehensive immigration reform is going to happen, but I think immigration reform will and it will probably be incremental. I yes. mean right? so you that's you'll, what and I
0: hope for actually
1: there there have been incremental reforms every every time they've you know the the secure fence act was an incremental reform to to enhance the the wall what what incremental reform if you could do one simple thing would you like to see and let me throw out there, David while you're thinking about it. I don't think there's a good economic philosophical moral case to limit people that want to come to the u s and work and not to become citizens so just in particular chemical engineers from China or computer scientists who are the best brains in AI that want to work here, they come and get a degree and we say, no, you're not allowed to work. Go home. That's insane. We're, we're in a, we're in a, am you know, not going to say an economic war, but we've got a rivalry with China. AI is a big deal. It's all about the brain power. And uh, so, yeah, let's, let's take the cap off if somebody passes a background check that, that there shouldn't be a limit. There should be a standard, but we don't need to have a quota on human brains that can come to America and work.
0: I like that, but let me point out, and I'm not arguing against you. I just want to point out the huge implication of what you're saying, which is you could have 10 million people immigrating next year, which is 10 times the usual. So just want to point that out. Yeah, and the funny thing <laughs> is
1: when people think of, it in terms of a nation, they get worried. But I think if you ask a city or state, like, hey, would you mind an extra 10% of taxpayers in your in your town? <laughs> or look at Las Vegas, which you know, 100 years ago, you know how many people were in Las Vegas? 300? No,
0: 22. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Now
1: it's like 2.2 million. And yet everybody yeah, yeah. in Vegas would say, wow, look at this amazing boom. Well, they, they had 2 million people move where there were zero. So you're right. You can create a scare scenario of all oh, they flood in. And I'm talking about work. And that's what's always baffled me that there's, um, you, you point out you came here and when you got a work visa that you had to, pass a test that you weren't taking a job from anyone. Yeah. But do we do that when somebody goes from Ohio to Michigan? Did the Michigan yeah. employers say, well, wait a minute, do you have a Michigan driver's license? Because we yeah. can't hire you if you're from Ohio or Kentucky.
0: It, yeah, we don't. And, and it's crazy. And, and you know, of course someone could have done my job. Would they have done it as well? Of course not. Heck no. but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Now, so
1: how, yeah. So now you've had some time to think. If you could pass, let's say, one, two, three things on immigration policy. And you but could you go, they be
0: huge or would they have to be incremental?
1: No, I they mean, they, look, incremental doesn't mean small. It means you're not trying to do everything. So they can have huge implications. OK, but you're not you're not trying to make a deal.
0: You get to immigrate if you uh, aren't carrying communicable disease, don't have a serious crime record in your country and stay off any kind of government support for the next 10 years.
1: So that's a variation of open borders. Yes. That's, again, removing limits but keeping standards.
0: Right, right. And
1: you do that for green cards for permanent yeah, residency.
0: For, yeah, and then, and then you get to hold a green card for 10 years and decide whether you like it. And then, you know, you've got to know this society well enough. You can kind of judge when you go to vote. If you become a citizen after 10 years, you know, you, you've, you can make a judgment about this place.
1: You wouldn't have called for that policy, what, 10 years ago, 20 years ago?
0: I think I would have. What has convinced me is that if you didn't have that policy, there wouldn't be this huge voting upset that I used to worry about. In other words, I used to worry that people would come here, not get the system, not appreciate the system, and vote it out. And so my advocating this is more to handle the fears of people who worry about that the way I did ten years
1: ago. So, so we're talking about assimilation, right? A lot of a lot of uh, skeptics of immigration say, "Look, you've got you, you can only take so much, and when you reach capacity, I think they've made these parallels that look, we've never had this many foreign-born people in the country, or at least we're approaching the level of yeah. of the eighteen nineties, nineteen hundreds, and they're they, they can't assimilate as quickly." And it, it, it's a shock to the democratic system. So you don't get, you can't, there's, there's some natural speed limit on patriotic assimilation. You don't worry about that now.
0: I don't worry about it myself. But again, I've, I guess I've become so political in the sense I'm trying to advocate things that I think have a chance. So let me tell you one that I think would have a chance that isn't the one I recommended, which is to triple the number of people allowed from 1 million to 3 million. So it's not this huge impact. And to charge them each 50 grand to come in. Ah. And we, I, I've done the math and we would make some serious money, which we really need for the deficit. For let's the, the let's think government. of
1: that. Yeah. Let's think of that. That's yeah, uh, yeah. how much is 50,000 well, per head times, times 3 million per year?
0: Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> come on, math guy. I'm, yeah. 3 million is 3 times 10 to the sixth. 50,000 is 5 times 10 to the 4th. So that's fifteen times ten to the ninth. So that's uh, wait a minute, fifty billion. I thought it was more. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, it, it's uh, fifteen billion. It's it's is
1: hundred and fifty billion.
0: Maybe it is. Maybe it I is. could be. I could be wrong. <laughs> oh yes, it's hundred fifty billion. So yeah, that's a huge down. Yes. I like
1: that. Although you know, I could see objections to it. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to to dig it out. But I thought it would be funny, David. Um, if, if a politician were to sound like a restrictionist and say, I think we need to make sure that no more than 1% of our population comes in, and I will fight for that. Will that be 3.3 <laughs> <3. laughs> <laughs> million a
0: year? <laughs> and true. I'm going to charge them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: going to charge yeah. them.
0: <laughs> and the way, the way I actually came up with this, I mean, Brian has talked about it, other people, Gary Becker talked about it. The way I came up with it before I knew their thinking was in 1986. We lived here a couple of years, and there was this ship off the coast of Santa Cruz bringing a whole bunch of of illegal people in from China and they were caught and I wanted to go there with a sign saying let my people in <laughs> and and I didn't I was busy trying to get tenure and everything but um they did interview them and asked them how much they would paid and this is them paying to live here illegally which means they're still at risk and the typical the number they were they paid if I remember correctly was somewhere between six and ten grand in 1986 dollars you adjust for inflation and you're close to thirty grand, 25, 30 grand right there that people are willing to pay and they're not even assured Illegally. of being legal. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. fifty grand is not fifty grand isn't even that huge a step for someone coming from a poor country in Latin America because they'd have relatives here or other people willing to help them out, willing to them yeah. money and so on.
1: I, I do. I've argued myself um, bringing in refugees is one of the great stories of the United States. We've been more open to refugees literally than the rest of the world combined in terms of raw numbers. Um, and it was sad to see that that decline. Uh, I thought George Bush got some credit for for fighting against a natural instinct to be sort of anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim. Gave speeches right away, but um, you know the real hero in this turned out to be Gerald Ford. He 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 was the one. Do you remember the boat people um, that were a, bit, a big deal? Maybe you can talk about what the perspective was like then, and and did that change your thinking about refugees?
0: Um, well, I was always pro refugee. I'd seen enough, you know, movies about my wife's Jewish, and I'd seen enough movies about the Holocaust to always be in favor of refugees. So that wasn't a big leap. But I still remember this in the LA times when I was at UCLA, this picture on the front page, the guy who started world airways, I can't remember his name, but he sent over a couple of airplanes like 747s over to, I think Vietnam and brought all these people out. And I started the sweetest looking little Vietnamese baby in this big airplane seat in the, on the front page. And just my heart reaching out and saying, this is so fantastic. The other person I want to give credit to is a guy I know you like, which is who is Ronald Reagan. And here's one thing I remember from 1980 when Carter said, we're going to let those people in as part of the Mariel boat lift. He got a lot of negative reaction. So an easy, an easy piece of low hanging fruit for Ronald Reagan would have been to attack Carter. He didn't. I still remember what Reagan said. He said, when a man's jumping out of the burn a burning building, you don't ask for his driver's license before you put the, the wow. net Wow, Yeah, and this woman I was dating at the time lived with a fairly, fairly uh, famous short story writer named Kay Boyle. I went over to pick her up one night and they were doing all their letters to Amnesty International. And Kay Boyle's friend was Joan Baez Sr. <laughs> Joan Baez's mother. And we got talking about it. And, I, you know, she's left-wing i all get out. And I quoted Reagan. And she went, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? So that was, I thought, well of Reagan and well of Joan Baez Sr.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, you worked in the Reagan White House, we mentioned at the very yes. beginning, and maybe um, that might be something fun to pick your brain about. Was there talk about immigration in, the, in that CEA?
0: No. You know, what's amazing is how little we thought about it back then. Like I didn't. And I um, and I Not that that was one of my areas, that would have been the labor economist, a guy named Thomas Kniesner. But I don't think issues came up. I don't think it was just just a live issue. And you tended to work on things that, it's not like the Council of Economic Advisors initiated things much. You tended to work on things that came along and put your input into it. And that just didn't come up much, as far as I know.
1: Well, we've moved into an era where presidents are just issuing executive orders. Is that... So what do you think about that?
0: I think it's horrible. I think it's horrible. And and um, they all do it. Each one does it more. You know, each one sets the limits even greater. And, you know, we didn't elect a dictator. We elected a president. And I just think it's really bad. And, and boy, is that bipartisan. You know, every president since I've followed politics, which is since, you know, LBJ really, has done it.
1: But it's, it's, I remember when um, Barack Obama was an interesting case, and I think, you know, had his heart in the right place in a lot of immigration issues, but the way that he issued executive orders, DACA, DAPA, the, the, you can be sympathetic with what he's doing, but he'd said for the previous, you know, three, four, seven years, well, I can't do this, and then suddenly does, and it's a political football. I remember debating here at Stanford with uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. And I said, "Well, imagine if this power were to be used by Donald Trump." And they just laughed and laughed. Yeah. He'll never become president. What well, uh, he did, <laughs> well, look, I like a lot of what Trump did in terms of yeah. economic policy. I've had a lot of yeah. friends in his administration. Didn't like the immigration so much, but it was like you know, reaping the whirlwind, guys. You you yes, don't yes. know what we're gonna have. And now Joe Biden, it's like the. Their limits have completely come off on issuing executive orders, and it makes me really worried about uh, what kind of democracy this is.
0: Me too. By the way, I'm curious, you debated her in public, or is just a one-on-one conversation?
1: This was, um, no, this was a Seaper debate.
0: Uh, oh, wow. I wish I'd, wish I, is it on, is it available?
1: I've never, I don't think it is. Okay, um, okay. But, it, you yeah. know, maybe, I'll tell you what, though, Tell, and I'm going <laughs> to give you the last word, but it was... Um, I walk into the debate, I'm excited, I'm prepared. I've been thinking about immigration for a while. And there's Ken Arrow in the front row. Oh, wow. Debate in front of Ken Arrow. I was was one of my heroes, brilliant guy. That's fantastic. It was fantastic. I'll tell you what, and and we'll close on this. I came to the Hoover Institution for the first time, not seven years ago when I started to work, but 30 some years ago, because I submitted an essay for a contest that was judged by Milton Friedman. Wow! And wow. I didn't know what Hoover was. I barely yeah. knew what Stanford was. It was a <laughs> midwestern kid. You got to know Milton Friedman pretty well.
0: I did. I did. So I started college when I was sixteen because I'd skipped a grade, and my birthday was in November. So I finished when I was nineteen because in Canada was a three-year degree. And Demsetz had said, "Come to University of Chicago and you know whatever. Look, look into that program." So I went down to Chicago within a couple of weeks of graduating. And Dempsey took me to lunch and I knocked on Milton Friedman's door and he took me in and talked to me for 10 minutes. Wow. And so I would write him about my life and what I'm doing and, and he would write back and he once called himself my Dutch uncle. (laughs) And uh, so sometimes when I give tips to young people, I call myself their Dutch uncle. Yeah. So he was, he, and he said two things to me, both of which I followed and I was going to follow them anyway, but still one was there's more to life than Ayn Rand which is absolutely true. And the second was make politics an avocation, not a vocation, because it will corrupt you. And by the way, I can say this because I saw, just saw a video the other day that said, showed that Milton Friedman had, had, had admitted he was wrong. When I told him I was going to work at the Cato Institute, he wrote back and said, no, no, don't do it, you'll get corrupted. And I did Wow. It. And so I just saw this little tribute to Ed Crane in which he says... I said that Cato would get corrupted when they moved to Washington. I was wrong. So anyway, that was uh, he, he was in. I, I
1: wanted to close with Milton because I think you got to know him well enough to see his thinking change on immigration a little bit. And how was that? And well,
0: way? he was very nervous about the welfare state. And he said he loves open immigration, but you can't have open immigration, open borders and a sub- substantial welfare state. And the person and I thought there was something to that. The person who's talked me out of that is Brian Kaplan, who points out that with immigration, you're going to have less of a welfare state because there won't be the homogeneity you have in Sweden or whatever.
1: Right. Yeah, it yeah. turns out the social science research shows that people are, are less supportive of welfare programs in a more diverse society. Um, it's an interesting argument. But I, there's the other one that uh, turns out immigrants contribute more than they take from a lot of these That's like, how, how we keep social security solvent for another nine England. months. What might actually be yeah. necessary.
0: That's right. Because the welfare bankrupt. state in the United States is aimed largely at the old and immigrants tend to be young.
1: Wonderful. I would keep you on for a second hour if, uh, if the, the <laughs> if you would let me, but I know you've got other appointments. Um, I Let me encourage you one last time and thank you for writing, I think, uh, there are a couple great blogs out there, but I've always thought the EconLog was, you know, in, in a competition for number one. Oh, so, thank um, you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Why America? The Immigration Podcast with guest David Henderson. I'm Tim Kane, and the producer is Ali Giyu. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us and listen to future episodes at whyamericapod.com. Thanks so much for listening, and don't be a stranger.